I'm Alex Devon, and this is my discussion with Warren Ellis, in which we cover everything from cities and technology to magic and the broken worlds of tomorrow. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. The reason, Warren, why I wanted to begin this discussion with you is that it seems to me that you are on the trail of something which I have also been trying to figure out which is this sense that perhaps the future towards which we have been telling ourselves we are headed is not at all where we've ended up. And in fact, that much of our discussion about the future describes a place where we aren't. And it seems to me that you're doing some active thinking about where it turns out we actually are. And so I guess I'd like to just start there. Where do you think we are? Yeah, never assume I'm not just wandering around blindly in the woods, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> That's the process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, always better to start these things where the middle-aged white guy lives in the middle of nowhere. Ah, <laughs> oh, where I would like to think um, that we are first approaching new ways or at least more mature ways of looking at the whole concept of speculation and trying to get a look at whatever it is that is coming towards us. That has probably been the main focus in my thinking about this over over the last 10, 15 years. Um, Just trying to avoid that whole bear trap of prediction and trying to look widely rather than narrowly, trying to get past the whole over-specialization thing and the echo chamber. And how does this nonfiction project that you're working on fit into that? Can you tell us about that? A whole lot. does. It's one of those things that started off as one thing and, and may well end up as another thing. It came out of a talk I gave in Berlin three or four years ago um, at a conference called Cognitive Cities mm-hmm. that was nominally uh, about the concept of the smart city. And I was the guy who came on at the end to shout at everybody. <laughs> <laughs> And I wasn't invited to another conference for like 18 months, two years. <laughs> but but it, it, it comes out of that and trying to approach all these things with a sense of history and with a sense of interconnectedness. There were too many examples that day of people who had come up with the most fantastic ways to gather and surface otherwise unreachable flows of data from the processes of living in, maintaining and operating a city. And all these presentations ended the same way. It was like, we gathered all these fantastic things that you didn't know you could gather, and then we gave them to the local government or the state government, or, or or whichever other authority they'd been hired by. And we have no idea what they did with it, and we didn't share this stuff with anyone else, and we're just showing you some slides. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Gathering all this stuff up, not talking to anyone else, and then throwing it into a memory hole. Yes. Yeah. And I'm sure they were getting 
paid very well for it. Um, but it wasn't really doing anything for anybody. And I'm sure lots and lots of other people would have found the, the data and the processes developed to gather that data would have spoken directly to whatever it was they were doing. And, and this could have been a whole wave, a whole movement. And you don't really hear people talking about smart cities so much anymore, do you? No, no. We seem to have crested a certain wave of uh, naivete that it took to believe wholeheartedly in that vision, I think. Sure. And, and of course, it, it also didn't help that that, uh, that data just got uh, thrown into wells. It was. It's. It's really hard to sustain a movement if if you don't get to keep the maps, let alone share them. So I see. I've seen a lot of things like this over the last few years, and not only is there no, for one of a better phrase, cross contamination across the various silos, worlds, and echo chambers of of the futurism dodge. But also, uh, there is no sense of history. Uh, there's this story, and it's probably apocryphal, but it's stuck around for 100 years. There's this guy who built a better guillotine. This fantastic execution machine. And showed it to, I think it was one of the Scottish kings. I don't remember now. Um, but so the story goes, this, this thing was so fantastic and so efficient that um, it was given as a gift to the king. No one else had one. And, and the first guy the king used it on, of course, was the guy who brought it to him. Right. Yeah. And apocryphal or not, it's a great story. And I think extremely illustrative uh, of what happens when you gather data on people and give it to entities. It seems to me that there is some form of parallel between uh, the sort of early industrial age where people with some capital, um, a certain amount of uh, legal protection, and uh, the ability to uh, mobilize industrial acumen uh, reaped this vastly disproportionate amount of benefit far before anybody else figured out what was even going on. It seems to me that there's a parallel between that in some ways and where we are with data right now. Do you see some sort of parallel like that? Or how, how does that land with you? Um, I don't think it's wrong. Um, I'm what occurs to me immediately is from like '95 through to '05, everyone was talking about the digital revolution or the post-industrial revolution or the second industrial revolution. The, the metaphor was was fairly solidly in place. Here we are again. And here we are with uh, our new generation of 18th century merchant adventurers, essentially. Yeah. And you've been talking and writing a fair bit about the world our forefathers and mothers lived in immediately before the Industrial Revolution. Mm. Um, for example, uh, you know, I, I remember you discussing uh, the cunning people. It seems to me that you've been noting recently a lot of sort of the archaic and the ways in which the archaic still resonate in the world. Are those two things connected for you? Um, 
I think so. Um, I mean, as a, as a writer, I'm probably attracted first by metaphor and noticing the metaphors that don't go away, the stories that don't go away. Mm-hmm. Um, that's obviously an appeal. Um, in terms of, say, the cunning folk, where we're very much talking about the dichotomy between the court and the country, if you like, towns and cities, and then you know, the rogue coders in villages, um, the people with very small hyper-local operations uh, um, dedicated to just keeping things rolling along and and deploying the old antivirus. Uh, the, the, the metaphors, to me, uh, are very strong. I think we're probably in a different story, if I can put it that way. What story uh, do you think we're in? That's what I'm trying to land on. It's it's very, very easy to give the funny dystopian answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the story is, we're all doomed, Alex. Right. But uh, I was reading and thinking a lot last year about accelerationism and how that the, the notion of acceleration, accelerationism is, is an old idea. It's essentially if you take all the chains of capitalism, it will become a runaway machine that will eventually crash at the end of the track and we'll all be free to to invent a new railway. We'll all be free to to invent a new way to live because capitalism will have destroyed itself. Sort of the Marxist singularity almost. Yeah, 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 essentially, yeah. Um, And I just can't, I mean... I just can't shake the feeling that it doesn't work like that. People have been using the term late capitalism um, since the late 1800s. (laughs) There's only... And and calling it late capitalism has become an invocation. You're you're trying to bring that on like a spell just by using the words. And I've got this horrible feeling that it just doesn't work like that. Um, I've got this, just like the singularity doesn't work like that. What if there is, in fact, just this point of terminal velocity, but there's no bottom? Uh, It it just reaches this awful, screeching, blaring velocity that is very, very difficult to survive, and it just keeps going like that. Mm Mm-hmm. What if it just keeps falling forever and there's no end of the train tracks? And the 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 point of all that is I'm wondering if we're we're in a different story that in fact doesn't have the big crash ending, uh, or perhaps doesn't even have the the transformative ending that you can certainly apply to some aspects of the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if everything just gets weirder and weirder and stranger and stranger and doesn't stop, and it just gets harder and harder to live like this? Obviously, I mean the the, the human condition is to be endlessly adaptive, so I'm sure we would. Um, but I I kind of fear that <laughs> that screeching, blaring speed, that loud world. 
Um, maybe, maybe that is where it's headed. I don't. It could be. I wonder it sometimes if if we're even in that kind of story, though. It seems to me that one of the characteristics of the stance from which we've approached the future for the last, say, 150 years has been this idea of the technological sublime, right? That that we are still in sort of a mythic landscape, but now it's technology that's going to make us transcend. Um, you know, we may not have the, the Christian millennium, but we have, you know, the asymptotic curve. And that in this weird way, even though the astonishing is pretty ubiquitous now, the transcendence kind of fallen through. But we still have all these stories that are about things going on infinitely or things, you know, being on curves that cannot be stopped or, you know, uh, being in a temporary space before something that's utterly transformative to everything happens. And I kind of wonder if that story itself is out of date. I would start by pointing out, or at least suggesting um, more politely, that it's worth, it's worth remembering that futurism has been an actual profession for about 120 years. Um, and you have to kind of distrust professional opinion because it tends to be conjured for money or tenure. Mm -hmm. It kind of explains the state of philosophy these days. Um, I tend to distrust the term transcendence in anything. Um, it's got that grabbing, reaching, give me, give me quality, give me something transcendent, give me something astonishing. And we're so desperate for that that we've lowered the bar to the point where we think phone is transcendent and astonishing. Right. And if you put it into historical context, sure, it is. Um, but but normalization is, is a rolling process. Uh, and our own personal contexts should tell us that, no, it's really just a telephone. Um, I, th I think we've, we've kind of lowered the bar for, for astonishing and transcendent and amazing and world-changing. Well, I think we have also a, a, an industry of people, you know, futurish, futuristic is a brand attribute now, right? It's, it, it's a marketing point. And yeah. I think we have a whole industry of people who attach futuristic to things and people and products. Right? Yeah, no, no. I, as soon as the word came out of my mouth, I mean, this, 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 this might actually be part of what we're, we're both trying to surround here. I don't know if futuristic as a word, is used in those terms anymore. I'm having trouble thinking of the last marketing campaign that really had the word futuristic up front. And I think this is actually a big part of what you've been talking about. The term futuristic has been, um, I wanted to say demeaned, and it's not the wrong word, um, it's not the right word, excuse me. I'm doing well. I've only had four coffees today. Um, <laughs> the, the word futuristic doesn't have that shine on it anymore uh, because we've debased it too much. We've applied the word futuristic to so many things that I don't think it has that weight anymore. It comes off like a weasel word. 
yeah. futuristic. Yeah, right. Like that Nokia I had. Shut up. I think that's right. I wonder, though, if there isn't sort of an implied futuristic to things. I, I've been trying to make sense of, you know, things like the Apple Watch and just even why that feels like a great idea to anyone, um, honestly. Uh, and clearly, part of it is this sense that if you're buying that, you are in some way one step ahead on some curve than the people who don't own it. Early adopter sheen. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that it's not just that you're an early adopter of watches that signals that you are, you know, farther up some asymptotic turf than, than <laughs> mere mortals, right? What, what those things do, uh, and I think the Apple Watch will very much do, because these things are essentially notification devices, because our phones and they're too big to take out of our pockets all the time. I mean, you've yeah. seen the iPhone 6 Plus. It should come with a tote. <laughs> so we can't get our phones out of our pockets all the time because they're, they're too bloody big now. They're the size of the televisions. Um, so we need our notifications kicked to the wrist because we can actually get to our wrists. Uh, so people with Apple Watches... Are people with big, shiny phones who are very busy and need their notifications, so they need the Apple Watch. It's busyness as the as a fetish. Mm. It's busyness as status symbol. The busier you are, the more important you are. Yes. Um, and um, as a guy, I saw, I saw a guy do a presentation the other week. I think he's a marketing director. And I think he actually said, and, and you know, how busy you are uh, means you're important and it shows how successful you are. Therefore, you're a better possible breeding partner <laughs> and will be desirable as a mate. This is, he said, this is what all these things are. It's, it's entirely uh, Darwinian peacock displays. It's <laughs> that is amazing. Oh, it was wonderful. Scott something, Scott Greenaway, maybe. It was quite wonderful. So, yeah, the, the Apple Watch interests me on a number of levels without actually interesting me enough to want to invest one. Invest in one. <laughs> and, and not least because um, they've forgotten their own context. Anyone who remembers the first iPhone is not going to buy the first Apple Watch. Because the first iPhone was essentially a toy. It didn't. It had very little functionality. It did not work incredibly well. It was incredibly pretty. It was groundbreakingly pretty, but it didn't. Crucially, it didn't work as a telephone. <laughs> Details. It, um. it did not work as a telephone until the three GS. Right. Um, so you, know, you had it's that an amazing interesting phrase. kind of status symbol that says. I have more money than cents. <laughs> I don't need it to work. I just need you to know that I have one. You had that phrase about glass that, uh, where, where you said it looked like something from a toy future. Um, yes. That really resonated with me. <laughs> it, it did have that yeah, rounded plastic Fisher Price sort of vibe to it for me. I've only <laughs> seen one of the wild ones. I was in New York. I was... Uh, uh, on the corner of my hotel in Soho, uh, and there's a very busy, um, the, the cross street is very busy, it's down from Broadway, and there's this guy in the middle of the middle of a crowd, 
proudly wearing his Google Glass. And he had this little bubble of space around him. Right. Well, I mean, that's the it thing. Was like, uh, it was like yeah. he had a force field. It was people sort of edging around him as best as they could. I heard Glass described here about a year ago as one of the most effective contraceptives yet invented. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Apple Watch may that prove to be a triumph of the will um, because the smartwatch <laughs> sector... The smartwatch sector is no sector at all. It, it, it's simply been willed into existence. Um, several companies have decided that smartwatches are going to be a thing um, without apparently having done any market research or, you know, asking anybody. It's yes, well, what, could, what could us mere, you know, what could, what could us mere humans in the public know about what's <laughs> up the curve, right? Um, <laughs> I right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, smartwatches. Smart smartwatches are uh, in the domestic US. Smartwatches are maybe maybe a twenty million dollar a year business right now. There are not a lot of them. So I'm very interested in the idea of a skewmorph. Right. I mean, this has been bouncing around design for quite some time. Right. A, a skewmorph being, you know, we make digital cameras in the square shape of film cameras so that people remain familiar with them, right? Um, so that yeah. people think it's a camera when it could have just been a long stick or, a, you know, a plastic ball or whatever. Um, and uh, it seems to me that these days more and more, the very concept of like a phone is in fact a skewmorph, right? That like really there are these devices that we carry around that are about, you know, connecting us to data streams and tracking our progress and, um, you know, locating us for services and, and all these other things that they're doing most of the time when we actually mm. talk on them very rarely, right? Um, yeah, um, this, this has been one of the interesting things in this century so far for me. Uh, we point at things and we struggle to find names for them. Mm. Um, television is a thing we point at and use the word that does not remotely resemble the television of 30 years ago. We call Netflix television. Most people don't watch Netflix on a television set. And there is no televisual process, classical televisual process involved. It's just a thing we call television because we don't have another word for it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's the same thing uh, with, with mobile phones. Uh, we call it a telephone. Um, it's clearly not, but we don't have another word for it. It seems to me that we're in that condition for all sorts of parts of our lives, you know? And that sometimes the, the, the thing to which we refer is not even a thing that ever existed, but is something that we, you know, told stories about last century. Um, you know, I, I, I see this, for example, when people talk about AI. Oh, yeah. And I mean, so much of that is really just essentially, you know, designing very clever programs. And, and, and it's sort of weird to talk about intelligence, much less sentience, when you're describing these things, except for that, the best word we have is AI, you know? Yeah, uh, because machine learning um, isn't a sticky phrase. Yeah. Uh, and machine learning is what we're talking about much of the time. Um, 
I don't know. This is this is something I have to go and talk about at a festival uh, with a philosopher next month, <laughs> uh, which is going to be awfully interesting, um, because the t- the terms of intelligence in the term AI are so fuzzily defined as to be almost meaningless, um, and a lot of people invoke consciousness in their discussion of intelligence. And we don't have a firm um, understanding of how consciousness even works. There is, I get, well, I mean, we're talking about old science fiction stories. There is this story that once you reach a critical mass of nodes in any network, it will become alive. Yes. We've all seen that one. Yes. What was it? Forbidden the, the Colossus Network or whatever? Oh, that and Skynet and you name it. There's dozens of them. By the same definition, if I piled up a stack of chicken feathers from here to the moon, at some point it should magically turn into a chicken. (laughs) There should be a critical mass of chicken feathers that makes it into a chicken. Yes. It's the same logical process. Runaway chickenness. Runaway chickenness. Why not? Orbital chickens. Well, it seems to me that one of the things that... One of the things that happens in our discussion when we evoke terms like AI is we remove the agency of the coder. And Same thing with algorithms. Exactly. Yes. That's exactly where I was going with it, actually. It was like people I talk figured. about algorithmic stockholders, right? There are no right. algorithmic stockholders. There are stockholders who use algorithms, right? Right. And like if, if, if the, quote, algorithmic stockholders are producing extremely volatile markets, like that's actually people doing that, right? It's not some runaway force over which we have no control. Right. Um, algorithms are just, uh, as we understand algorithms today, are just another extension of human agency. I've been having the same conversation about drones. Mm-hmm. Um, drones have become one of those very um, politically and, and forensically uh, convenient terms. Oh, the drones are awful. That drone attack was terrible. There are drones everywhere now. And there's really just people. Yeah. Drones are an extension of human agency. Is is another way to project human intent. It's too easy to focus on the objects um, rather than the people throwing them. I mean, yes, obviously, there's there's debate about command and control for military drones in the field. But we too do tend to focus on the drones and not the people. Exactly. Not the 19-year-old in the air-conditioned trailer on a military base in Texas, much less the chain of command above him, right? Right, right. And of course, there is some discussion of that and some argument about that. But that should be what it's all about. The machines are beside the point. Uh, Drones are just... uh, They're just too interesting, and and they throw up too many entertaining and frivolous arguments of their own. Why do you think we, or at least some of us, have such a hunger to personify our machines? Um, That's that's just something we're hardwired for, because we personify and dramatize everything. Um, The the, the great earthworks uh, and megaliths, megaliths, excuse me, of the Neolithic period, 
uh, were thrown up to dramatise the landscape, to turn the landscape into a story at certain times of the day or certain times of the year. We do it to everything. Always have. So it's just a form of animism, really. Um, it, it, it's that we're, we're, we're hardwired to make stories out of everything. We explain things to, to each other with art in some way or another. It's just a thing we're hardwired for. So, arguably, we have never had better storytellers than we have now, right? We have whole industries of people who do nothing but tell stories. And well, we've, we've, we've never had more storytellers. Right. Okay, fair enough. Um, but it does seem like there is a, a degree of sophistication in the way that people, you know, uh, anticipate what stories an audience will want, churn out stuff that they think will land near there, figure out how to market to the right people, et cetera. I mean, you've, you've been near that machine. You know how much of the budget of, you know, say a large feature film has nothing to do with making the film, right? Right. Um, and, and I kind of wonder sometimes if there isn't like an asymmetrical narrative thing happening in our society. You know, if there, if, if we are not paying enough attention to, sort of the uses to which sometimes these stories are put? That's a tough one. Um, I think there is probably more more attention paid now uh, than there ever was. There are, there are more eyeballs on these things now. Um, how, to, how to cut into this? Um, there, there, there's something in here about the democratization of narrative uh, to some extent. Um, the entry level to presenting your own stories, your own narrative to any audience used to be extraordinarily high. Uh, and now it's relatively low. Do you, do, do you and, think there's something that we see? I mean, so we're almost exactly the same age and we both, came up in the world where it was super hard to get anybody to be able to see what you were doing, right? Yes. And that's clearly not the case now. Do you think that there's something, some particular vantage point that we have that may not be sort of more widely shared among people who didn't have that experience? Um, I think um, there, are, there are several very different perceptions at play are people our age tend not to live on say group instant messenger right i've found um people 15 20 years younger than us uh did and still do uh they they have a rolling group conversation that that crosses devices yeah during the course of every day, in addition to uh, the people they know physically in their local situation, uh, the conversations are much broader and much bigger uh, in one section of the demographic, um, which has which is which has terrified Hollywood in the big machines for a long time, um, because you know word of mouth, massively extended word of mouth, uh, is a deeply disturbing thing. <laughs> uh, so yeah we have uh we have a peculiar context be- because um 
communications did get so wide so quickly. I always, always tell the story when my daughter was oh, two or three years old, maybe four. I want to say three. Uh, we were parked in the car together. She was in a car seat in the back. And we were talking about television for no good reason. I don't remember. And I, I found myself explaining to her that when I was her age, there were three television channels in Britain. And one of those didn't come on until about five o'clock in the evening. And she sat there and she thought about this. And she said, was one of them the Disney Channel? <laughs> I said, no, it wasn't. And she threw herself back in the chair and said, well, what did young people do back then? <laughs> yes. Because she had never known a time without 50 television channels. And she had never known a time when I didn't have a phone in my pocket. And she had never known a time without at least one computer in the house. And there is a very, very hard difference. I tell her stories now of the 70s and 80s. And she always says, it sounds like you were living in hell on earth. How did any of you even survive? And she's 19 now. Yeah. Um, there, there is a very, very hard gap between the way you and I grew up. Um, and, and, oh, yeah. I mean, almost a chasm. And, and, and the, yeah. And, and it's a much wider chasm than that between me and my father. Yeah. Because between me and my father, um, <laughs> the only major qualitative difference was, was the introduction of color into television. And I think there's there's something in there too. I remember um, uh, hearing a story uh, that that Carrie from Slater Kinney in Portlandia, I'm forgetting her last name, uh, that she tells about being in the Northwest in the '90s and how you would sometimes go to a music store in some strange city, and somebody there, if they thought you were cool enough, would turn you on to that one record that didn't even exist in your city, you know? Right. And you would bring it home, and it would change everything. Right. You yes. know, you'd listen to it a hundred times. And for all the barrier to entry that was there, I also think there was a possibility for things like that to really matter in a way that's difficult to like reconstruct now. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, the, the process of finding the good stuff w was more arcane back then. I remember having to go into London to tiny bookshops to, to find the books and zines that I'd heard about or read about or been told about. Yeah, and it was sort you of like an initiation hunt. ritual, right? <laughs> yes, yes, it really was. You had to hunt, and, and that was the whole trial of it. Um, you know, yeah. this is, <laughs> it was the ordeal that you, you had to live through to uh, become like the others. And that's largely gone um, in a lot of ways. But on the other hand, most people have that one thing they found somewhere that very few other people did. Yeah. And because a, a lot of people have wider access to more people, you know, these things get shared. So it's good in one way because the good stuff is more evenly distributed. But you don't have those one-on-one -on -one experiences or those solitary experiences with the material once you've found it, that has gone. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, 
So is hanging people upside down in caves and giving them scorpion venom. <laughs> right. Making them pledge to Mithras. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, there is a thing, though, that I've noticed that is going now that disturbs me because it, you know, I think both you and I have used this trick plenty, but which is that thing of being, of knowing how to be a bit ahead of the curve and look in sort of the right nooks and crannies to find interesting little bits of anticipation, right? Mm. Like, ooh, like somebody has just figured out a way to do that. Well, that leads really obviously to this, right? You know, somebody's just figured out, um, you know, uh, how to weld together uh, bits of floating plastic and fuse them into larger pieces of floating plastic. That leads pretty clearly to floating garbage islands, right? Yeah. And it seems to me that there are some people who are really, truly excellent storytellers. And I, I would put like, you know, William Gibson and Bruce Sterling and Neil Stevenson in that category, um, who are partially what makes them so good is their ability to find and, and include and extrapolate on those things. Mm. And it struck me in Gibson's most recent novel, The Peripheral, one of the things that I found a little weird about it was that every single thing that he used like that, I had already seen somebody else use. And mm. I don't mean that to say like, oh, look at me, I'm so smart, because I don't think it's about that. I think it's like just really hard to keep an implication like that in your own basket, you know, when there are so many people now who've been trained in that trick and the information flow is so fast and there's so much benefit to just adding a bit out there about that, you know, tweeting the idea of a giant garbage island um, or whatever. And I sort of wonder about what that might be doing to our ability to tell stories. And I I wonder if you're sort of, if you're feeling that at all. We've been bitching about that all century. (laughs) It's getting harder and harder to do near future speculative work. Um, because either someone else has, has done the bit or someone else has publicized the bit, um, or in some cases the bit actually happens while you're writing it or just afterwards, so you've got to go back and rewrite it. I haven't read The Peripheral yet, um, but bearing in mind how close to the crest of the wave, if you like, that William had got on those last three books, I, I, I kind of... Uh, imagine that may have been his thought process in going back into more full, more far-flung science fiction. Uh, pattern recognition is the example where um, the whole thing with the video, the footage, yeah. uh, he, he wrote that book and I think YouTube launched a week after it was published. Right. Thereby completely eliminating um, half of the setup for that book. Yeah, it really felt like journalism, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, this is going to keep happening. I actually like um, the last book. What was the last one? Zero History. Mm-hmm. The, the one last before. one in that. Yeah, yeah just uh, Zero History. Uh, it was the last one in the sequence, wasn't it? I like that one um, because, yes, for much of uh, that trilogy, it felt like he was writing journalism. And then he does this wonderful thing at the end, <laughs> this terrific thing where he's like, well, you thought I was writing journalism this whole time? Screw you. I'm going full James Bond for the last chapter of this book. <laughs> and uh, it really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, and I just laughed all the way through it. It was glorious. 
Yes, he just blew the entire trilogy up, and it was wonderful. So if if it's getting harder to sort of do that, you know, sort of scouting ahead and trend spotting and sort of being good at the near future extrapolation, mm. is that going? Is that driving us towards some other kind of story to tackle what we're doing? This is this is where design fiction comes in. When you sell something as an entertainment, as as a piece of long-form narrative fiction, you're entering into certain premises once you're under certain labels, which is, you know, <laughs> this will not be out of date tomorrow. Right. Is the essential premise. Uh, with design fiction, that doesn't matter. Um, it is simply... It is it is couched in a way reminiscent of, but essentially different to science fiction, which is this is a report from a possibility, mm-hmm. um, and it comes with none of the baggage uh, of science fiction as a narrative genre. Yeah, I was working for in two thousand thirteen, two thousand fourteen. Uh, the company IDEO was uh, kind enough to sort of bring me in as sort of a planetary futurist in residence. Um, Mm. And I got the chance to work with a lot of really interesting, creative, brilliant people. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of field development right now in not just design fiction, but sort of design provocation as a whole, right? Sort of Mm. these attempts to sort of uh, pull you into discussions of the future by trying to have you engage with a particular piece of it that jars you a bit. Right. Mm. Um, and one of the things I, you know, first of all, I think there's some amazing work being done that way, but I think that one of the problems with that is it seems to me that one of the really, one of the really, uh, sort of tectonically grinding things in our culture is that the very systems that we're used to interacting with and, and depending on are changing, going away, you know, uh, transmogrifying, right? And mm. that it's very difficult to use design fiction to talk about systems. You know, that at the very best you can design, you can, you know, you can, you can sort of portray a moment of interaction with the system. I think, I mean, that, that largely depends on, on the approach and the intent. Uh, Nicholas Nova did a wonderful thing a couple of years ago um, about uh, an everyday networked um, world uh, heavy on uh, face recognition, touch recognition. And the the clever thing he did uh, was actually write out Stuart Brand. Very few things work the way we're told they're supposed to. Mm -hmm. Always have. We develop workarounds for every mass-produced tool in our lives, you know, um, you have to jiggle the key in the, in the ignition just right to get the car to start because it's a bit cranky. You know that back door doesn't quite fit the sill properly, so you know just to lift it like a half centimetre before you push <laughs> it in and turn the handle. Right. We have workarounds for everything. So he conjured this science fictional world uh, where you unlock your car by putting your hand in the window and you start the car by looking into the rearview mirror and all these things. But nothing quite works right. 
So the woman goes to, to to unlock her car by putting it on the window, but she's got to get the hand on the window just right or it won't unlock. Right. Because she did it the one time to set the lock and she's got to repeat that every time. And then she looks in the in the rearview mirror to start the car and it doesn't start. Um, she keeps um, a tube of mascara in the glove compartment because the day that system was set and she looked in the mirror for the mirror camera to get a read on her to, to use that as the unlock system, she was wearing mascara. So now she's always got to put on mascara to start the car. <laughs> yes. And it, it's full of things like that. Um, and I think as science fiction, um, that is a, a wonderful understanding and a wonderful presentation of how whatever future is on the horizon, that's probably how it's going to work because that's kind of how it works right now. Yeah. How does this play into the thinking you've been doing about cities? The more I thought about cities in order to write this book, which, as I say, is mutating, um, the more I started thinking about what we're trying to build on cities, the more I ended up thinking about what's under them. Um, so much of our modern day cities, um, the older ones, it is still defined by what's under them. Um, Broadway in New York is, is, you know, the glaring example because Broadway is built right on top of the original Lenape track that was used across the island 5,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, there are, there are still uh, spirit tracks or spirit roads in London. That um, Spirit tracks or spirit roads were the paths people had to take uh, in the days where you had villages clustered around churches, um, but there are people of different religious dominations, denominations in each village. And when one of them died, you could not cross one cemetery to get to the cemetery he had to get to. So these these paths were cut through the landscape in order to provide more more direct ways to transport the dead. Mm. Uh, and they were called spirit tracks. Uh, in Germany, I can't remember the actual German name, but the German name for spirit tracks actually means, it directly translates as corpse flight path. Uh, and these are the way our cities are, are essentially built on, you know, ancient trackways and, and spirit tracks in, in some examples. Mm-hmm. And we're walking around on dead people all the time. And, and much of the time what we're doing is, is simply emulating what's under it um, or sometimes not understanding what's under it. I just ended up falling into, in, into this notion of, uh, of deep history. Which then obviously connected with, because of the spirit dress, ghosts, uh, folklore, mythology. And the fact that this is what brought me back around to what has been my particular obsession over the last year or 18 months is that the 
the, all the technology we're currently in the process of trying to develop uh, in terms of cities, day-to-day living, that whole thing, is trying to emulate the condition of magic. Hmm. Right down from the security gates at the local supermarket um, that you know, are essentially haunting you to find out if you stole anything. Hmm. Uh, all the way through to... Steve Jobs and his persistent metaphor that the iPad was magic. He used the word magic over and over again, and here's why. You could point at the screen with your finger like a wizard and something would magically happen. That that was the whole point of that interface. It was magical. Yeah. It was pointing at something. Pointing at your magic mirror with your finger and and something would be caused to happen in accordance with your will is essentially the definition of magic. It seems uh, to me that there might be two kinds of magic at play there, though. There's there's that. There's the auto-magical, right? But there's mm-hmm. also the glamour, right? There's There's the imbuing of something with a sensory experience that may or may not even be there. Well, this is <laughs> this is something that occurred to me the other month. There, there are actually two movements in in the whole technology is magic dodge. It's uh, it's me and my people on one hand, and people like Greg Borenstein on the other hand, who's very much using the term magic in terms of illusionism and sleight of hand. Uh huh. Um. So he would actually be worth worth you talking to at some point. Uh, so yeah, because um, yeah, he actually asked me to, to to look at the syllabus he was putting together at MIT, and I, I said, "No, you're you're on the other side. I'm not talking about <laughs> sleight of hand and and magic tricks. I, I'm talking about ancient powers of the earth and ghosts and." <laughs> you know, one of the persistent stories that we tell ourselves is that when we deny the past, it comes back, right? Yes. And, you know, Utah Phillips, the folk singer, had that great line, the past didn't go anywhere, right? hmm And I wonder how that's, how that's occurring to you, especially sort of where you live and the context of Essex and ancient Viking settlements and so forth, Um, and if you've sort of like kind of run that against parallel examples, you know, I mean, so for the, 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 the place I live, of course, the oldest things are the trees and the shell middens, you know, like where, where is it you live? I live in Berkeley, California. All right. So I think the oldest building in the city is, you know, 150 years old or something. Um, and so I think there's sort of a very different sense of what past is here. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a past of displacement. Um, again, yes and no. I had this conversation with a film company a few years ago. Um, I had written this series of graphic novels uh, that were occult-based and set in Britain. And one of the first things they said to me is, we don't want to take them out of Britain and set them in the States because America just isn't old and weird enough. You've got all the old weird stuff in Britain, so we don't want to do that to you. And my first reaction was, my first reaction was obviously, well, that's very nice of you. Uh, you know, it's nice to know the guy won't be played by John Stamos and, <laughs> and, and set in Ohio. Um, 
And then I thought, I don't know if you're right. Um, I mean, you're up in the Bay Area, and the Bay Area certainly settled 5,000 years ago um, because it was a bay, it would have been. It wasn't heavily settled. Not like uh, the Los Angeles Basin, which 5,000 years ago was called Yar and had something like 100, 150,000 people in it. Um, but I think the other like 40 or 50,000 that California had at that time were certainly around the Bay Area. Yes, this um, was comparatively and, densely settled. Yeah, And it was, it was probably uh, a similar pop- populace. They had their own rituals. They had their own drug rituals. They were boiling up uh, jimson weed in salt water to get the detura out and doing something horrible to it because uh, some people believe that um, the, the drug states lasted 12 hours at a time. So people were <laughs> getting really fucked up in Berkeley 5,000 years ago, so not a lot has changed. Yes, and it's important to remember, of course, that some of them are still here, right? Um, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Very probably. Um, So, you know, some stories stick around. Um, Yeah, I mean, mean, everywhere will give you a different perspective. I mean, where I live was was actually very lightly settled up until five, six hundred years ago. It was mostly forest around here. Um, uh, and, and and heavily tribal. It wasn't broadly settled because it was mostly forest, um, which is why the Vikings liked it. They 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 can't see a tree without wanting to chop down a bunch and then sit in the middle. I have this sense when I think about sort of planetary stuff, sustainability stuff. One of the things that that I end up puzzling about a lot is the sense in which we now live genuinely on a different planet than people lived on even 200 years ago, but especially, you know, 10,000 years ago, that many of our stories run very deep, right? And include sort of, at very least, kind of a folk memory um, of earlier ways of being, and quite often include like still stories of pre-industrial life. Right, we still tell our kids all sorts of stories of pre-industrial life. Right? Oh yeah, um, and that I have the sense sometimes that when people sort of wake up to the planet we actually live on, it, it can be a very dislocating experience. And and one of the first impulses is to reach back, right? Is to say, okay, well, the world was different and probably more sustainable and and in better shape 200 years ago, but certainly it was 10,000 years ago. So what Mm. were we doing 10,000 years ago and how can we do that again, right? And it strikes me that that's really, it's asking the wrong question of the past. Like how do we Mm. go back to you is the wrong question. What do you think the right question is? I would start with... Driving home the notion that we have always altered the landscapes on which we live, um, there has not been an unmanaged landscape uh, in in the den- at least the densely settled parts of the world um, for probably ten thousand years, and you could even uh, look askance at that. Mm-hmm. Is the fact we are always we always have been 
managing and changing the face of the planet we live on. Um, the question to ask is if, if we kind of assume that we've always done that and we're always going to do that, maybe we just look for better ways to do that, more conscious ways to do that, um, to stop doing it without a sense of history uh, and a sense of consequence. Accepting that rewilding and a return to innocence um, is a false scenario and not on the cards. Yeah. I would agree wholeheartedly with that. And I think we even need to be very careful about what sort of stories we tell ourselves about what societies were and weren't sustainable, right? Because the farther back we reach, the more we understand that even, quote-unquote, very primitive, balanced societies, um, you know, were, in fact, often really, you know, did quite a lot of landscape engineering, you know, burned off the forests to get more deer, um, hunted all the big predators, etc. Yeah. Even things as basic as enclosures had their consequences. Yeah. And that I think that it, it, it often seems to me that if we are in the long term headed towards, uh, you know, some sort of genuine planetary sustainability, it will be a wholly new thing that we have invented, not the resurrection of something from the past. I, I agree 100%. It's, it's, there, there needs to be this coming to terms and then going forward into something new. Uh, an archaic revival, to borrow a phrase, uh, is simply not going to do a trick. It, it, it's time, in fact, to just assimilate the whole of history, define the lessons learned, define the questions to be asked, and then go forward. Warren, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's great to have a chance to talk to you. Terrific. Thanks very much, Alex. To hear and read more ideas like this, you can find me on Twitter with the handle Alex Steffen. That's A-L-E-X-S-T-E-F-F-E-N. Or you can sign up for my newsletter at alexsteffen.com. would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.